Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Asexuality is a broad umbrella term that refers to individuals who do not experience sexual attraction to others or who only do so under rare or limited circumstances. Research suggests that 1-2% to of the population is asexual. Asexuality is something that, until recently, hasn't received a lot of scientific attention. But growing research in this area is helping to shed important light on the nature of asexuality because there are a lot of misconceptions about it. For example, some people believe that asexuality is asexual dysfunction and that these individuals have impaired sexual arousal. But that's not the case, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be exploring a new study that looks at sexual arousal and response in asexual men. A previous study has explored this in asexual women, which we're going to discuss as well. This research looks at asexual persons' genital and psychological arousal when viewing erotic content, as well as when engaging with their own sexual fantasies, and how all of this compares to persons who are gay or heterosexual. The results are fascinating and help to give us a better understanding of what asexuality is and is not. I am joined once again by Dr. Malvina Skorska, a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Toronto, Mississauga, and at Brock University. She is also in training to become a psychotherapist in order to bridge both research and clinical work. Her research focuses on sexual orientation and gender dysphoria and has been published in leading scientific journals. This is going to be an amazing conversation. Stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. Enhance your sexual performance with FirmTech. Check out their tech ring, which is designed to give you harder, longer-lasting erections while also tracking your erectile fitness. Wear it at night to monitor nocturnal erections and cardiovascular health, or wear it during lovemaking for a boost in the bedroom. Unlike other erection rings, FirmTech's is easy to put on, adjustable to your comfort, and it can go on whether you're hard or soft. To learn more, check the show notes or visit myfirmtech.com and be sure to use my exclusive discount code, Justin20, to save 20% off your purchase. Again, that's myfirmtech.com. Become a certified sex educator, counselor, or therapist with the Modern Sex Therapy Institutes. MSTI offers 20 certification options in areas including medical sexology, kink, neurodiversity, and LGBTQIA affirmative therapy. They also offer a PhD program in clinical sexology that can be completed in two years and meets all ASEC certification requirements. All programs can be completed 100% online and are flexible and customizable to fit your schedule. You can take live courses the third weekend of each month and choose from over 300 archive workshops taught by renowned experts in the field. For more information, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. Okay, Melvina, let's talk about asexuality. So I was hunting for some new research to discuss on the podcast, and I got the idea to go to the websites of the top sexuality journals and see what the most read articles were last year. And when I was looking at the page on the Journal of Sex Research, I saw this paper titled Patterns of Genital and Subjective Sexual Arousal in Cisgender Asexual Men. And it was by far the most read piece last year. In fact, it was viewed more than 100,000 times, which is huge for an academic journal article. I mean, we're usually happy if a handful of people have read our papers when we publish them in a journal, let alone hundreds of thousands. 
Now, you were first author on this paper, so I wanted to talk to you about it because it seems like there's definitely a lot of interest in it. But before we dive in, let me first ask you how you define asexuality. So just like with the broader term sexual orientation, different people might define it in different ways. So for your research purposes, how do you define asexuality? I think like maybe the simplest definition is a lack of persistent sexual attraction. But there's so much heterogeneity in the asexuality community. There's so many ways that individuals can express asexuality, define asexuality. There's a spectrum of identities. So it really depends on what component of asexuality you're interested in. If you're interested in multiple components, if you're interested in capturing that heterogeneity as much as you can, for our purposes, we defined it as a lack of persistent sexual attraction. Yeah. And so it's important to recognize that there's that diversity and variability in definitions because it means that when someone says that they're asexual or identifies as asexual, they don't all necessarily share the same experiences. The way I tend to think of it is that asexual You can use it in the sense of being a broader umbrella term to refer to anybody who rarely or persistently experiences this lack of sexual attraction. So that would also include in that broad definition, people who are demisexual or gray sexual, where they only experience sexual attraction under limited circumstances, such as when they feel an emotional connection to another person. But the more strict definition of asexual, when you're not using it in that umbrella sense, is for that persistent lack of sexual attraction. So With all the research on sexual orientation, the fact that different people define it different ways just sometimes makes the literature a little bit messy, depending on which definition they're using. And that's why some of the findings don't always line up from study to study. Yeah, exactly. That is definitely one of the challenges of conducting research in this area. When you're looking at the existing literature, you definitely have to take into account how previous studies have defined asexuality or other sexual orientations. Absolutely. So in your recent study, you wanted to look at sexual arousal patterns in asexual men. And before we go on, my understanding is that a previous similar study had been done on asexual women. So focusing on asexual men was adding something that hadn't been added before. But just at a general level, why is it important to study asexual person's sexual response and function? You know, what could that potentially tell us about the nature of asexuality? Yeah, it could tell us a lot, I think, about the nature of asexuality. I think there's a lot that's unknown about the nature of asexuality. The research on asexuality has, there's less of it than like the other, what we consider like maybe more traditional categories of sexual orientation. And asexuality is mostly considered a unique sexual orientation, although because we don't understand asexuality as much, there's still lack of understanding of whether or not it could be considered a unique sexual orientation. We were interested in looking at arousal patterns because when, you know, one of the common challenges that we might have gotten if we've ever talked about asexuality with individuals is like, well, maybe they just don't get aroused to things. Like maybe their arousal systems or sexual arousal systems are not working in the same way that sexual people's arousal systems are working. So as a scientist, you're like, okay, well, we can, you know, run a study to look at that and see if that's true. 
And in the study in women, they didn't find support for the idea that the arousal systems of asexual women wasn't, there was anything atypical with it, or there was a dysfunction in it or anything like that. But no study had been done on men. So that's where we wanted to kind of fill the the knowledge gap there. Yeah. And I agree with you. This is a very important area to study because there are lots of misconceptions out there and differing ideas about what asexuality is. And some people have characterized it as a sexual dysfunction. You know, maybe it is a sexual impairment or maybe it's just really low sexual desire or maybe it's a paraphilia, meaning an unusual sexual interest, or maybe it's a sexual orientation. You know, people have had a lot of different ideas about what asexuality means. And so better understanding sexual arousal pattern, sexual function can tell us something important about it. Now, before we get into the results, let me ask you just for the general overview of what you did in this study. So who did you recruit to participate and what did you ask them to do as part of this study? Yeah, first I'd like to acknowledge, I worked with my PhD supervisor who has worked with Lori Brado. And Lori had a graduate student at the time, Maura Guell, and Lori and Morag asked Tony and I if we wanted to be involved in this study, and we said, of course. So then we collected data for the study across two sites in Canada. So in Vancouver, Morag and Lori collected their data there, and Tony and I collected our data in St. Catharines in Ontario. I think that's like a very unique aspect of the study that we collected data across the two different sites and there didn't seem to be any differences across the two sites that would impact any of the results that we're going to discuss later. But basically, we put out ads that try to find asexual cisgender men, heterosexual cisgender men, and gay cisgender men to participate in our study. We had to recruit cisgender men because we were looking at sexual arousal uh, in the lab using a phallometric device, a penile plethysmograph. That's, I guess, the technical term. And this device measures change in circumference as genital arousal occurs. It's kind of like a, almost looks like a rubber band attached to a string uh, that it hooks up to uh, the recording device. And then the rubber band is put around the penis. And when that rubber band changes circumference as arousal occurs, then that's kind of how we infer that sexual arousal is occurring. Genital sexual arousal, I should say. So we recruited cisgender men that were asexual, heterosexual, and gay to participate in the study. And we assess their genital arousal. We also assess their subjective arousal. So internally, how do they feel? Do they feel aroused when they're looking at the various stimuli that we were showing them? And we had five categories of film stimuli that we showed our participants. Uh, We had female-female sexual content. So that means that the actors were one female and another female interacting with each other sexually. Uh, We also had male-male stimuli, female-male stimuli female masturbation videos and male masturbation videos. And then the last part of the study was we asked our participants to generate a sexual fantasy of whatever they would like in their minds. And we assessed the genital arousal and subjective arousal to this fantasy that they generated in their minds. So the sexual arousal part was the main part of the study. We also had our participants complete various questionnaires. Yeah, so it's a diverse group of men in terms of their sexual orientation. You're measuring their genital arousal, how psychologically aroused they are, 
in two conditions. One, when they're watching various types of pornography and in another, when they're fantasizing about whatever it is that they typically fantasize about. So I love this design because it allows you to look at a whole bunch of different things. And before we go on, I just wanted to mention that I love that this is now the third generation of folks from the Brado Lab who have been on the podcast. So Dr. Lori Brado, one of your collaborators on this project, was a guest on the podcast way back in, you know, episode four, five, or six. And Morag Ewell, who was one of her students, was a guest, I want to say somewhere around 70 episodes or so ago. And now we've got Malvina on the podcast. So I like that nice lineage of folks from your lab. And you all do such fascinating and high quality work. So, so excited to dive into it. Now, let's talk a little bit about the findings. So first, when looking at the results from showing people erotic films, how were asexual men's sexual responses similar to or different from those of gay and heterosexual men? So when we're looking at the different film clips, one of the common findings in the sexual arousal literature between like, for example, heterosexual men and gay men is that, you know, heterosexual men would on average become aroused to stimuli that they found sexually interesting. So, and this is what we found in our study. So the heterosexual men tended to show the greatest arousal to the female, female film, the male, female films, and the female masturbation film. And then the gay men didn't show much arousal to those films. And the gay men really showed a lot of arousal to the male-male films and the male masturbation films. And then the asexual men for all of those film categories were similar in their arousal to the men that didn't prefer that category. So for example, for the male-male film, they were similar in arousal to heterosexual men. And the asexual men and heterosexual men both differed from gay men who displayed the most arousal to the male-male film. So to summarize, um, the asexual men tended to have lower arousal or very similar arousal patterns as men in our study would to their non-preferred stimuli. And they didn't seem to have higher arousal to any of the film clips. So whereas like the heterosexual men tended to show higher arousal to at least their preferred stimuli. So it seemed like none of the films were preferred by the asexual men. Now, when you're talking about men's arousal to their non-preferred stimuli, right? So for example, a heterosexual man watching gay male porn, they're still showing on average some arousal, right? It's just not like a large amount. Is that correct? Exactly. It's relative. So uh, we're looking at differences between the groups. We're not looking at differences from zero arousal here. Yeah. Now, by contrast, what happened when you looked at men's sexual responses when instead of viewing an erotic film, they were thinking about their preferred fantasy? So how are the findings different for fantasy versus film? Yeah. So for fantasy, and I think arguably this is the coolest part of the findings in the study, we found that asexual men didn't differ from heterosexual men or gay men. None of the groups differed from each other when thinking of a fantasy in their minds that they found arousing. So everybody seemed to be turned on by their fantasies in the sense of showing this higher level of arousal when they were instructed to think about a fantasy. 
So it's very different from showing them erotic films where you saw this clear difference between asexual persons and gay men and straight men. They all looked very similar when you're looking at fantasy instead, but different when looking at the films, which I think is really important for why you had this very elaborate study. Because if you were only looking at responses to the films, then we would have missed out on this really fascinating finding. I agree. And our interpretation of the findings would have probably been impacted by just showing the films. And it kind of goes to show perhaps just how, I guess, if you're only thinking of like content that heterosexual or gay men might find arousing, you might be very limiting to what other people might find arousing. Yeah, but I think that gets at a bigger issue in a lot of the sexual arousal research, which is that, you know, in order to do those kinds of studies where you're going to show people erotic films, somebody has to pick the films that you're going to show. And those films might not be everybody's taste. And we know that for men in a lot of these genital arousal studies, as many as a quarter to a third of men don't register enough arousal at all to even have usable data. And it might just be because they're not showing them material that aligns with what their sexual interests are, which I think actually makes the case for why we might want to use fantasy a little bit more in some of this arousal research, or at least use fantasy and porn, because maybe they're telling us different things in some cases. But I think the main takeaway from what you just described there is that when it comes to people's capacity for sexual arousal, asexual men don't seem to be any different from gay and heterosexual men, which means that asexuality in men isn't a function of genital impairment, right? Yes, exactly. And the content of their fantasies likely don't involve any of the stimuli that gay men and heterosexual men find to be typically arousing. And do we have any sense of what the content of asexual men's fantasies might be? Is that something you asked about in this study or in other studies? We did ask about it in this study, but we haven't analyzed those responses yet. So I'm not going to say anything more about the fa- sexual fantasy content. I guess I can say to be determined. <laughs> Maybe it'll be another highly read publication in the future. <laughs> yes, and I'll have to have you back when you have those data. Uh, there has been pretty limited data looking at asexual persons' sexual fantasies. Some of it points to similarities in some of the broader themes. Like, for example, in my own work, you know, I find that asexual persons, just like what we call allosexual persons, so people who have sexual interest, that you know, kinky and BDSM interests are prevalent in both groups, as well as a number of other sexual fantasy themes. But the nature of those fantasies, the way that they play out might be different. They might, for example, not involve other people. So, you know, I think this is an area where we need more research, but it does seem clear from your work and some of the other research on asexuality that many asexual people masturbate and have sexual fantasies. So just because you're asexual doesn't mean that solo sex and solo arousal, that these things aren't happening. So I think that that just further adds to our understanding of asexuality. It doesn't mean genital impairment and it doesn't mean that you're incapable of or not having these sexual responses or engaging in self-stimulation. Yes, definitely. I think it's a great 
point to bring up because when I bring up the topic of asexuality, I think, and you say something like, oh, it's a persistent lack of sexual attraction, I think the image or like the thought that goes into people's minds is that they just don't engage in any sexual activity and it's just not the case. So I think research like this highlights what might be going on and how it might just play out a little bit differently in asexual individuals. Yeah. Speaking of that, what are the limitations of this research? So, I mean, one obvious one is that we can't generalize these results to all asexual men. You know, asexual men and asexuals in general are not a monolith, as we discussed earlier, and there's always going to be diversity and individual variability. So what would be kind of the key caveats or limitations you would want people to be aware of here? Definitely that, uh, you know, we couldn't examine our results by subgroups of the asexual community. We did have variability in our asexual participants in terms of their identities, and we couldn't look at that. And I think that is very important. It would be very interesting to look at that in future research when you have larger groups of participants. The other limitation is that we couldn't include trans and non-binary individuals because of the limitation of using the penile plethysmograph. I think that is a very important caveat or limitation to note. Uh, Hopefully in future research, other methods of examining sexual arousal like eye tracking or neuroimaging might be used to kind of address that limitation. Yeah. And, you know, just to add to that a little bit more, in reading through your paper, I remember Also seeing that about 75% of the asexual men said that they masturbate, so about one in four of them do not, so there's variability there. And then also when it came to participating in that fantasy condition, some of the asexual men couldn't participate or weren't eligible to participate in that because they didn't have fantasies. So again, there's just always that variability, and asexuality can mean and can be expressed in different ways in different people. So. How did your findings compare to previous research on the sexual function of asexual women? Is the story here similar when it comes to, you know, their sexual responsiveness? And I don't recall in that previous study, did they only look at erotic films or was there also a fantasy condition there? I wasn't involved in the study in women, so I can't speak to it in a huge amount of depth. But in that study, they did not have a a sexual fantasy component And I think the reason why they didn't do that is because of the finding that women, in previous research looking at sexual arousal in women, there was the finding that women tended to be aroused to various stimuli, even stimuli that would be considered non-preferred. Whereas for men, it seemed like the preferred versus non-preferred categorization of stimuli seemed to matter more. So I think that is an important distinction between the two studies. I don't know what the results would look like if the asexual study in women would be redone with a sexual fantasy component. I think it'd be really cool. Yeah, it would be. So as the fantasy researcher here, I'm going to advocate for including fantasies in every study of genital arousal going forward. And I think we're also going to have to add a virtual reality component too, because I had Lori Brado back on the show a few episodes back and we talked about her work on virtual reality and sex therapy and how that creates this much more immersive experience. And so I would also have to wonder you know, for example, if you're studying asexual persons' sexual responsiveness, if you used virtual reality 
pornography as opposed to 2D porn, whether you might see differences there in the pattern of results. So, so many interesting things to potentially explore in the future. Yeah, science never ends. There's always (laughs) something else, right? (laughs) Sex science never ends. There is always something else that is new and interesting to study. Now, we're almost out of time, but I have one more question for you, which is whether there's anything else you want to tell us about this study or, you know, the key thing or things that you want people to take away from it. Probably the key thing to take away from it is that I think our study highlights variability within the asexual community. And I think it's important to recognize the variability in the asexuality community and what it means to be asexual. And I really like that our study highlights some of that variability in the experiences that some asexual individuals have. Yeah, absolutely. And what are you working on now or where do you want your research to go next? Right now, I'm actually doing some cross-cultural research and neuroimaging research. So probably continue a little bit with that. And I'm doing clinical training because I don't have a clinical background. And I'm fascinated how maybe how research can be informed by clinical experiences, as well as like working more hands-on and in a more applied setting with research. Well, it sounds like you're going to be doing it all. So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Melvina. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? If you Google me, Melvina Skorska, I have a website. I also keep my Google Scholar list updated. I think those are probably the two best sources of information about where my research is currently at or what I'm doing research-wise. And I will be sure to share links to those in the show notes. So thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate having you here. And thanks to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. 